1: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today.
2: I toyed around with the idea of writing one and I didn't do it and I didn't do it. And finally I was retired and one of my best friends, Rolf Mawat Larsen, and I were having a conversation in 2016 about the uh, Iranian nuclear negotiations. And I said to Rolf, what happens if they cheat? And that gave me the uh, germ of an idea for a novel, Living Lies. It was an outlet for creativity. I used to love to run CIA operations. And this is as close as I can get to doing something, simulating an operation, writing a novel from start to finish. is is a lot like conducting a uh, clandestine operation and trying to guide it and make sure you've got all the plot holes filled.
0: Jim Lawler is a legendary CIA case officer turned fiction writer, a modern day John le Carré. I just sat down with Jim to talk about his first book, Living Lies, a novel of the Iranian nuclear weapons program, his coming novels, his career, and so much more. We'll be back with that conversation after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
1: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks.
0: Jim, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you very much, Michael.
0: I am really looking forward to our discussion because your book is really terrific. It's a page turner. I couldn't put it down. Made me think I was back in at CIA occasionally throughout the book. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion. But I really wanted to start by talking about your career a little bit. You took a bit of a roundabout way to get to CIA, right? Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yes, I did. In fact, I I like to say I backed into it and it was a um, a very fortuitous accident. I was actually in my last year of law school at the University of Texas. And like any last year student, either in graduate school or law school or wherever, there's only one thing you're focused on and that's finding a job. And so I was interviewing with countless law firms and lo and behold, CIA came to campus looking to hire attorneys for the Office of General Counsel. And a retired case officer named Bill Wood interviewed me. And about three or four minutes, maybe five minutes into this interview, he said, Jim, have you ever thought about the clandestine service? Well, this was 1976. And for those of you who don't know, the CIA did not even have a sign out on Route (laughs) 123. In fact, it said Federal Highway Commission, something or other. And there was just not much written or said about the CIA, And I answered his question. I said, no, I I actually don't know what the clandestine service is. And Mr. Woods said, well, Jim, he said, I've got this gut feeling that you'd be really pretty good at this. Now, he was there to hire attorneys for OGC, for Office of General Counsel, and not case officers. But it intrigued me when he said that. Unfortunately, at the time, my wife's mother was uh, deathly ill, and there was absolutely no chance that my wife and I were going to move away. To Washington, D.C., from Texas, and then overseas on an assignment. So I returned the application form to him with regret, but I knew I had to face reality. And instead, I went into, well, I went into a family-owned business. And I like to always ask people, how many people have been in a family-owned business? And I'll see a few hands. And then I say, I bet you I know why you're no longer in a family-owned business. And it all focuses on that word family. And <laughs> I I love my dad. I love my two brothers. We were in a steel uh, fabrication components business, and I was miserable. I was making a lot of money. In fact, I made more money than I'll ever make again in my life. But I found out early on that making money is not the secret to happiness. And so I became very discontented. I'd come home. I'd complain. And my wonderful wife, she took about three and a half years of this before she finally said one day, Jim, either do something about it or stop your belly aching.
0: (laughs) Sounds like my wife.
2: Yeah, well, it's pure logic. And you really don't have a right to complain if you don't do something about it. So I had kept Mr. Wood's business card. I went in my study. I typed out a letter to him. This was before Al Gore invented the Internet. So I had to type out a snail mail letter and said, you know, you interviewed me three and a half years ago. I wasn't ready. But I think I'm ready for this now, for this opportunity that you mentioned. Three days later, I got a phone call from a young woman who never used the words or the letters CIA. All she said was, Mr. Wood wrote you a letter or re- received your letter and he would really like to meet you next Thursday at the Holiday Inn on the Gulf Freeway at three o'clock. Can you be in the lobby? I said, yes, ma'am. And I went there and Mr. Wood and I chatted for about, Maybe two hours, he said he'd like to fly me to Washington. A couple of weeks later, he did, and I had some interviews. Came back, and about three or four months after that, I went back. I took the polygraph. I took the psych exam. Lord knows how I got through the psych exam, but I did. And uh, just very short time thereafter, maybe a few weeks, I got a phone call, and they offered me a job as a GS eleven. Operations officer. Now I had no idea, I mean no idea what this entailed or what this meant, why they chose me or what I, what was going to be expected of me. Literally nothing. It's so bizarre that I was taking a job that I knew nothing about and had no idea if I could even do the job. But at this point I was so desperate to get out of Houston and away from the company, the family company. I would have taken a job on the planet Neptune if I could have.
0: So Jim, you spent a good chunk of your career working to stop the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. And as part of that work, you were the chief of a team that identified and disrupted the AQCon network. Can you tell us a little bit about why your team was formed, how you ended up leading it, and how long it took your team to get to the bottom of the problem you were focused on and who AQCon ultimately was?
2: Yes, I can. I can tell you about this. It, we were originally were formed for an entirely different reason. Uh, the chief of the counterproliferation division asked me to take on a very daunting task, and that was to penetrate and disrupt another country's nuclear program. I won't mention which one, but it's been in the news a lot lately. And so he said, I want you to do that, and that's all I want you to do. And being an operations officer, I just love operations. And he's giving me the luxury of doing something that I consider to be psychologically righteous, and that is to disrupt a nuclear weapons program of an adversary country. So we created a um, an operation that was based on the uh, literally based on the same type of operation that Felix Dzerzhinsky, who founded the uh, Cheka, the Russian intelligence organization back in 1917, when he went after all of the uh, oppositions to the Bolsheviks. And his philosophy was, if I want to destroy the counter-revolutionaries, I have to become one myself, or at least pretend to be. And so we created an operation where if we wanted to destroy and disrupt proliferators, we had to become, in a sense, proliferators ourselves. And in so doing by creating the field of dreams and the people did come, not only did we ultimately uh, have some, you know, involvement with the original target, but guess who came knocking on our door? These elements of the AQ Khan network. And I was somewhat familiar with AQ Khan. Dr. Abdul Qadir Khan had uh, worked in the West for the Uranium Enrichment Corporation. And in the early uh, or in the mid seventies, He had stolen plans for centrifuge enrichment of uranium and gone back to Pakistan and formed what ultimately became Khan Research Laboratory and gave the Pakistanis a nuclear weapons capability. Well, this new thing that we discovered was he wasn't content with just giving Pakistan a nuclear weapons capability. He was out now freelancing, something that the CIA, I don't believe, had ever imagined that, you know, would be possible. Typically, we would see state to state proliferation, but not a private network. And yet, he had a private network that was out there offering nuclear weapons capabilities to um, well to whomever would buy it. And the first target customer that he identified was Libya, and this really set me back. I went, "Whoa, you know, here's an arch enemy of the United States, and they are possess- they are going to purchase." a full turn, a turnkey, full-scale nuclear enrichment capability along with plans for nuclear weapons. And so that's how, that's how we uh, came into contact. And that really took only about a year and a half after we started the operation when you know we basically came into touch with, um, in touch with elements of the uh, Khan network.
0: Okay Jim, how does a retired CIA case officer become a writer of fiction?
2: It was something I always wanted to do. In fact, it was funny. I, when I went through one of my interviews at uh, CIA, uh, one of the interviewers, and this was in 1979, he asked me uh, what I would like to do eventually with my life. And I said, I'd love to write a novel. And he, he looked disgusted and he said, That's all we need is another <laughs> author. <laughs> you know, I, I toyed around with the idea of writing one and I didn't do it and I didn't do it. And finally, I was retired. And one of my best friends, Rolf Mawat larsen and I were having a conversation in 2016 about the uh, Iranian nuclear negotiations. And I said to Rolf, what happens if they cheat? And that gave me the uh, germ of an idea for a novel, Living Lies, where basically the United States is engaged in negotiations with the Iranians, and it looks like everything's going well. In fact, it's going too well. And because the Iranians have decided that they are going to basically stop their centrifuge enrichment program because they already have have acquired enough fissile material from Russia for four weapons. And so they can have the luxury of, you know, concede making concessions to the U.S. knowing that they've got an ace in the hole. And the story goes from there.
0: What's it like to write a book of fiction for somebody that's spent a year, you know, years in the clandestine service?
2: Well, for one thing, you have to liberate yourself from the agency writing style. And that's hard after, you know, 25 years of writing the way the agency wants you to write. So you have to liberate yourself from that. But I found it actually, and this sounds blasphemous, but I found it to be probably the closest thing that someone can have can be to be in your own God, in your own universe, because you create these characters and sometimes they do what you want them to do. And sometimes just like human beings disobey God, they disobey and they go off on their own and, and create their own destinies. Um, sometimes, actually sometimes much better than I had planned. And it so it became very, it was an outlet for creativity. I used to love to run CIA operations and this is as close as I can get to doing something, simulating an operation, writing a novel from start to finish is, is a lot like conducting a uh, clandestine operation and trying to guide it and make sure you've got all the plot holes filled and you know the logic, the, strength, the train of logic and everything. Um, but I also learned that there's a difference between reality and entertainment. In real life, CIA operations can sometimes proceed at a snail-like pace, and then they take off like a rocket. And yet most readers wouldn't tolerate a snail-like pace in in a book. So you have to accelerate the action and sometimes make a few shortcuts. But what I tried to do was stay as close to reality as possible. I've read some other spy fiction and actually, a lot of spy fiction by non operations officers, and it just you know I, I I'm thinking to myself this would never happen, this would never happen, and uh, I tried to not dispense with uh, with reality. I tried to keep it as realistic as possible, even though I accelerated the tempo considerably. So, Jim, um, "Living Lies" is an interesting title. Where did it come from? Writing this novel was cathartic for me, and in the novel, the uh, A couple of the main characters, um, Lane Andrews and uh, Paula Davenport, they have an ironclad commitment to the clandestine assets that we recruit, and and yet they are expected. At a couple of times, you know, they were wanting to, they were expected to make shortcuts to disappoint the asset, and both these people, both of these heroes are very uh, very um, impatient with what I call the careerists, the apparatchik, the, uh, is what the Russians call them, the people who are so focused on their careers and not on the national security. And yet Lane and, and Paula are very much in the opposite camp. They're very devoted to national security, and they could give a damn about their careers. But otherwise, in fact, you're living a lie, and Paula uses that line, there's a very narcissistic CIA director for whom she works and he's lecturing her on things. And she said, sir, you know, I'd I'd just be living a lie if I did that. You know, if if I've got to do what you're saying, basically to dispense with the commitments we make to our clandestine uh, sources, do I can't do that. And so living lies, it's, you know, a lot of people live a lie, but, it's it's just not tolerable at least not in my world we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor
0: then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with jim lawler Ah. the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to carvana
2: it doesn't get any better than this
0: your favorite seat's the best spot in the house make it even better by entering your license plate or vin and getting a real offer in minutes
1: There really is no place like home.
0: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Jim, throughout the book, your characters provide insights into the intelligence business. And when I read them, they sounded perhaps to me like they were your personal insights to the intelligence prisoners. You don't have to you don't have to admit that or not, but a lot of them pertain to the recruitment of sources. And what I'd love to do is read a couple of those to you and get you to react to them. So the first one is your main character, you already mentioned his name is Lane Andrews. He says, and I quote, "Sometimes I can do it and sometimes not. It requires a force of will" an immense concentration, plus I have to be motivated properly. He sighed and then said, quote, look, I can explain most of my success rate due to various factors, my patience, my persistence, my ability to read people and their needs. He shook his head and added, maybe my empathy, perhaps my soft voice modulation. All of these things help a lot. But there's a small portion that's a mystery to me, except for the mental link I envision between myself and the target or subject or whatever you want to call it. That's remarkable.
2: Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I can. This is a phenomenon that I call in the novel, and I call it among my friends, the metaphysics of recruitment. Because I truly believe, as does Lane, that there is a small percentage. That gives certain people, myself and some others, an edge in recruiting. And all of the elements that you named, you read just now from that quote from Lane Andrews, all of those certainly enhance your um, ability to recruit people. But there is still maybe a small remaining part that's almost metaphysical where you are so focused on in your recruitment pitch of someone that it's like a mental link is going from your brain to their brain. I had one of my assets, one of my clandestine sources, once remarked, "Jim, when you're talking to me, my brain feels like it's in a warm waterbed. I have a soft voice, and I am empathetic. In fact, that's being empathic is a huge part of, of recruitment. But there's something else, something mystical, and the, I have a scene in the book where Lane chats with a couple of neuroscientists. And they are very disdainful of this concept. And they ask him what tricks he uses. And he says, I don't trick people. You know, I want them to want this. I don't trick people. I'm not doing anything like that. And he, um, you know, they're very disdainful. He actually (laughs) convinces them that they should do a study on this phenomenon because he says, the field of neuroscience, he says, are you telling me it's complete? You know, that we know everything there is to know about the brain? And they said, well, of course not. And he said, well, that's my point, that we don't know. If someone back in 1890s had seen an airplane, they'd think it was magic. And he said, well, now we know it's not magic. There are certain aerodynamic principles that cause a plane to fly. And maybe there's some, some kind of neurological capability that a small percentage of people have that they can convince other people to do things to want to do things. So I call it
0: the metaphysics, for lack of a better term. So Jim, let me read another one here. Lane reminded himself that recruitment was a lot like seduction. But then why was he so good at the former and so lousy at the latter? Was it that he refused to use his recruitment skills for his sexual conquests? The very word conquest was distasteful to him in this context. His cardinal rule of recruitment was to cause the target to want the result as much as he did and possibly even more. That last sentence, I think, is pretty profound.
2: And it's exactly the way I feel about it. Sometimes we talk about when I'm giving courses in recruitment to intelligence officers or FBI special agents, we talk about how our adversaries like the Russians or the Chinese or other uh, countries will use blackmail they'll use uh, coercion. And I don't like that. And it's not a moral reason why I don't like using those type of techniques. It's because I don't want to be driving down the street with a rattlesnake in my back seat. I want to motivate the people that I recruit to not only want to do this, I mean, but to want to do it really badly. A lot of, a lot of my assets, I think, considered me their therapist. They, were, they would want to, to look forward to the next meeting. They would want to find out, OK, how can I please Jim? What, what other secrets can I steal? And they would, they would go amazing, amazing distances for me. And so my job was really not only perceive who was vulnerable in this respect and who would do this, but then to keep them highly motivated. Now, one time, one, a colleague of mine said, Jim, you're nothing but a uh, a cheerleader and i said that's fine if i can cheer you on to greater accomplishment or cheer my assets on to stealing more secrets then i guess that's my job and then here's a really important
0: one we may call our sources assets but they're flesh and blood men and women who have placed their allegiance with us and are risking their very lives by working with us they are not simply pen and ink entries to be written off of a damned balance sheet when we feel like it. My highest commitment is to the security of our sources. That's a big one.
2: Yeah, that's a quote from Paula Davenport who's talking to the director, and he is a, um, in the book. He's a very narcissistic hedge fund, very successful hedge fund uh, guru. And he looks about, looks at the, our assets, you know, our covert sources. That's literally pen and ink entries, and she refuses to do that because like, like almost all the operations officers I know, the most sacred commitment we have is to the security of these sources. I would be, in fact, living a lie if I told these sources that we are going to co- go to hell and back to keep you safe and to rescue you if you get in trouble. And if I, if I told them that, that would be a damned lie, and I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to live a lie doing that. And that's what ultimately Lane and his team, and it's a joint CIA-FBI team, that they have to rescue some of our assets out of Iran, uh, people who put their lives on the line for us. This is a sacred commitment. And it's one that I made and one that you made, and certainly one that George Tenet backed up. We had some assets, unfortunately, arrested. And I spoke to George and George is just a remarkable human being. And he said, we will do everything possible, including having the president of the United States intervene. And he did. God bless him. You
0: know, what's interesting to me was when I was reading the book and I was reading about this operation that is taking place in the novel, and then I was thinking back to your counterproliferation work, much of which took place, or the heart of it, right, took place under the leadership of George Tennant. that... George Tenet was just the opposite of the director that you paint in the book. Could you talk about that a little bit, why you chose to do it that way?
2: Well, I told George, I said, this is no reflection on you. <laughs> George Tenet is an honorable man, a man of integrity. Of all the CIA directors I served under, he was by far the best. And uh, is in, he, he cared about his people. He cared about our assets. In fact, I've told George on several occasions that if I were to write his biography, the title would be The Spy Who Loved Us, because he truly loved us. He's a very charismatic individual, a very warm, perceptive, empathic individual. He would have made a hell of a case officer. And um, so you know, he's nothing like the fictional director that I have in my novel there. So um, don't don't let anybody make that mistake. Now, there are some other people who are based on people I really know. Uh, some of the good guys I acknowledge in my acknowledgements who I patterned after, patterned them after. And some of the bad guys, I'm not going to reveal that that's top secret. We're going to take another quick
0: break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us.
2: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs.
1: CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: Jim, I want to do a couple of additional quotes here. These aren't about recruitment, but they're about some other things that I think are important. So the first one is, traditional espionage became yet one more casualty of the global war on terror, which Paula thought of as the global war on tradecraft. Young officers, bright and courageous all, received a totally erroneous impression of what spying was really about, dealing with human beings over a sustained period and finding their motivations and stress points so that they could be recruited as intelligence sources. For 20 years, we've been fighting this counterterrorism, counterinsurgency war, and I think you're talking about that a little bit here.
2: Absolutely. Uh, All of the uh, operations officers in the generation after my own And a lot of my own generation were out there perforce uh, trying to keep America safe, fighting the war on terror. But the same time we were doing this, it was a totally different technique than what classic espionage is about. In fact, I consider the global war on terror was basically espionage in a sense at the point of a gun. And it was uh, it has no real relation to traditional espionage, tradecraft against sophisticated adversaries like the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians or any other traditional target. And so a lot of the young officers, as brave as they are and as much as we needed them to do that, they would get uh, basically amped up on this battlefield uh, adrenaline. And it had nothing to do with the way we traditionally recruit sources, very little to do with it. And I think that, you know, we've taken a hit I believe that the current director is basically refocusing us. I think I forget the term they use. I think it's the uh, the peer adversaries that we're going back against. Because let me tell you, while we were distracted for 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, our adversaries were not. Our adversaries were at the back door, the Russians and the Chinese and others, loading up on our secrets and recruiting sources inside the United States and our Western allies. And we've got, to, uh, we've got to make sure that we switch that focus back on where the real danger lies.
0: Um, here's another one that's you know a bit surprising in this world of technology we live in. But one of your characters says, big data typically equals big How come I've seen so few tangible results in intelligence operations from this so-called wonderful breakthrough? Let me talk about that.
2: Yeah, it's it's okay. It's a little opinionated, but Americans have this unfortunate tendency to rely a lot on technology and to spend big a lot of money on very, you know, glittery toys and things like that when in essence, and of course I'm I'm a human a human intelligence operations officer, so my focus has always been on the human factor. And that big data, yeah, it could help. It, You know, I'm sure it, it does help in uh, analysis and things like that. Uh, but a lot of times there's a lot of hype to big data as opposed to having a real source, say, on the Chinese Politburo or some key source in the Kremlin. Big data is not going to get you that. Human intelligence operations are what gets you that. And, you know, trying to penetrate, say, the Iranian nuclear program, or what's going on in Vienna right now with the negotiations. Big data is not going to really help us with that. We need spies.
0: Jim, I want to do one more quote here. It's a quote about something that no CI officer likes to do, which is take a polygraph. So the quote is, polygraphs were not lie detectors, but stress detectors. And their validity, if validity it was, were only good at a static point in time. It wasn't like an inoculation against betrayal, nor a flu shot against treason. Can you talk about that?
2: Yes, I think um, very, there's very little scientific evidence that polygraph tests are in fact measures of veracity or or deception. They're stress detectors. And if you are a low reactor like I am, when I'm taking a polygraph test, they barely can tell that I'm even alive. They'd have to put a mirror <laughs> under my nose. I mean, I honestly, if they said, uh, "Mr. Lawler is your name, uh, Johnny Appleseed," I'd, I could say yes, and you know the thing wouldn't blip. And it really is a—it's uh, a stress detector. I don't—I don't get stressed. People can fool polygraphs. Other people. Uh, can register stress when in fact they're, you know, in their mind, they're guilty of something minor. Uh, sure, if, if somebody makes an admission on a polygraph test, yeah, I get that's interesting. But the best polygraph operators are in fact extremely keen observers of human nature and are basically psychologists. And I don't want to diss polygraph operators because they're doing their job as best they can. But uh, even if, even if the polygraph worked, or were more accurate than it is. I'd say that, again, that's not an inoculation against treason because the very next day, you could have been telling the truth and the very next day you could approach. Uh, I had a uh, something like that happen on my first tour where I pitched a, a target. He turned me down. And then a week later, he brought it up and he said, Jim, you know, since the last time we talked, my wife wants a divorce and I've got to accept your offer. So suddenly, you know, things change in a heartbeat. And things can change in a heartbeat for uh, intelligence officers too.
0: What you said a couple of minutes ago, I saw the value as the admissions people make, right? And it's good polygraphers who draw that out of people.
2: Absolutely. They're like a priest. In fact, I refer to them in another novel as, you know, like a priest and they want a confession.
0: (laughs) Jim, last question on living lies. A couple of weeks ago, you posted on your facebook page the following i was thinking that perhaps i should send copies of my espionage novel living lies to our negotiating team at the iranian nuclear talks it might even be instructional was this primarily marketing for your book or do you think the negotiators really do have something to learn from the book and if so what
2: it was a bit tongue in cheek but i honestly think that since my book involves the nuclear negotiations it, it certainly points out the uh, value of having sources on the other side and the fact that President Reagan's old mantra of trust but verify, you need to have some way, and it's not just the IAEA, not the International Atomic Energy Agency, that's going to give us that because if they uh, decided to have a small, very small covert program somewhere and yet make concessions you know, to us... As if uh, they were being straightforward, I, I just you know I was a supporter, by the way, of the uh, JCPOA, the agreement that that we ultimately left in the Trump administration. I was a grudging supporter for it because I I believe firmly in Churchill's dictum that it's better to jaw jaw than war war. But um, literally, I am very concerned. What if they cheat and? I think we've got to have clandestine sources who can report on whether they're carrying out covert activities that are undetectable by the IAEA. Now, at the same time, I don't think we should push the Iranians into a corner, which then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when they see no alternative to a weapons program. The nightmare scenario would be if they hit a program or purchased fissile material in the black market, and then we relieve sanctions thinking they're in compliance. But, you know, the Iranians are not idiots. These people were inventing entire fields of mathematics when a lot of our ancestors were still painting our faces blue and living in caves. So these people are very sophisticated negotiators. I mean, they're excellent at this. And if there was a way that we could reach a meeting of minds, giving them the incentives to um, not have a program, then I think that would be commendable. But you know, you have to admit, if we were Iranians, you'd have to say, "Gosh, we live in a tough neighbor neighborhood." Jim, let me ask you one more question. You
0: have a second book and a third book. Tell us about those, and tell us where you are in the publication process.
2: Well, the the next book is called "In the Twinkling of an Eye." It will be published in January in ebook form and in hard copy, probably in uh, March. And it involves a Ukrainian boy. His father is a fireman killed at Chernobyl, being uh, very courageous. And the young man loses his eye, one of his eyes, due to a um, uh, cataracts, which are caused by the radiation from the Chernobyl and then an infection. And he's replaced, you know, here he is a teenager and he's got a glass eye Well, we all remember how self-conscious we were about our looks when we were teenagers. And so that's a very devastating thing for him. And his dad was a hero. And here he's a child of a a, uh, hero. And he has also inherited a certain uh, genetic problems, which he's passed on to his daughter, who's now got leukemia. And he gets seduced into joining a Russian uh, genetics institute, a brand new, highly funded institute. And he finds out gradually that it's actually run by the Russian intelligence service, which is developing an advanced genetic bioweapon for assassinations and terror. And then running parallel to this is a North Korean girl who escapes to South Korea via a tunnel under the demilitarized zone. Her father had been a military officer. And she ultimately is brought to the United States, gains her citizenship, and becomes a uh, an FBI special agent, especially devoted to battling weapons of mass destruction. She's actually based on a, a female friend of mine, Dalray Summers, who is a ethnic female Korean special agent, and one of the most one of the most effective special agents I've ever met. And so, anyways, the she recruits the uh, young Russian scientist to serve as a source on this very covert bioweapons program and they uh, basically they remove his false glass eye and they put in a glass eye which has artificial intelligence in it where everything he looks at is basically recorded and then he can transmit that back to the United States so it's the perfect spy spy device and yeah you don't need a camera he just looks at things and records both audio and visual
0: That's fantastic. The book is Living Lies, a novel of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. The author is Jim Lawler. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. That was Jim Lawler. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.
0: Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free